Oh, man, I've messed up. In for now. Sorry, can you hear me? There we go. All right, we are in our third week of Summer in the Minors, and in our third part of Jonah, talking about Jonah. And so, um, Jonah has delivered his eight-word message to the Ninevites, is where we left off. He, he said, uh, in 40 days, there's going to be a great uh, overturn here, uh, which... Uh, which uh, he did not, remember, call them to repentance. This was a report. This is just a notice of what God's going to be doing. But the Ninevites, however, responded with penitence and with sorrow and, rep- and, and humility. And, uh, and in verse 10 of chapter 3, it says, When God saw what they had done and how they put a stop to their evil ways, he changed his mind and did not carry out the destruction that he had threatened. God's mercy is great. God's mercy is great. We talked about the, the level of evil and, and really just uh, uh, how, how wicked this group of people were. But God's mercy is so great. And Jonah had uh, this great development through the story in his obedience to God. He, he went from being uh, running the opposite way from God to God developing him and working him while he was in the stomach of the whale. And he obeyed God. But despite that, he's still definitely far from a completed project. Jonah is still a very broken, depraved man in and of himself. But uh, how many of you have ever noticed that God leads you through one area of growth? You're like, man, I've really developed and grown in this area. And then there's another area just waiting around the corner. He's like, he doesn't give you a break. He just moves you right into the next thing. Um, And so you're like, wow, that was a real uh, challenge for me. God really stretched me. I'm glad I developed. Oh, no, I'm in something new. You know, God doesn't uh, give you really a break to catch your breath. You're just moving right into new things. And so God holds off his destruction of Nineveh. And the following chapter is one of the least talked about chapters of the story of Jonah. However, I think it's one of the funniest chapters in the Bible, um, as well as one of the most convicting chapters in the Bible. Uh, So if you will, join me in Jonah chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4, starting in verse 1. It says this, This change of plans, God not destroying Nineveh, Greatly upset Jonah, and he became very angry. So he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say, before I left home, that you would do this, Lord? That is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn your back from destroying people. Just kill me now, Lord. I like that he says you're eager to not destroy people, so just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather, Lord, I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. Um, Just as an interesting note, this is this is something totally separate. Jonah's only mentioned one other time in the Old Testament, and and uh, and he tells this wicked king that he's going to have a successful campaign, and he was speaking the truth on behalf of God. But another prophet came along and spoke another prophecy over him and said, "Ah, "That's going to change." and Jonah's prophecy did not come true, not that he was lying, but God changed the direction of it. And I think Jonah had kind of a little bit of an ego issue with his uh, prophecies not happening. Uh, so anyway, um, so, so this, what Jonah does here, though, in responding this way, is what we in the parenting industry call a temper tantrum, okay? This is throwing yourself down in the middle of the aisle and kicking your feet and screaming that you are going to die if you don't get this thing, right? Um, Jonah's furious that his preaching actually worked. He's, he's furious and he's annoyed that the people repented, that God's grace was actually for them too. Um, 
he, he takes an Exodus 34 quote where God quotes, God, God's talking about himself, and he throws it back at God as an insult. He says, how dare you be such a loving and compassionate God? How, how dare you be so good and slow to get angry? I, everybody says that you're, you know, I can't stand that you have this unfailing love. Ugh. He's just, he's just disgusted by God. Um, I've never heard God, someone complain about God's kindness like that before in the Bible. They're like, oh, God, you're so nice. Just make me sick. Um, we never say that, especially when it's a re- relation to our own receiving of God's grace. Right? That's, that's when I'm like, oh, aren't you so good and compassionate, Lord? But then when it's somebody we don't feel necessarily deserves that grace of God, that's when it kind of changes a little bit. You go, why are you so nice, God? Uh, We're told to love our enemies. Jesus says that. And to do good to those that persecute us. We're told to love them, but we often define love them as to be nice to them. Not necessarily love them, just be nice to them or cordial. Uh, But what do you do when God loves your enemy? How do you respond when God blesses your enemy? Jonah didn't handle that well. He said, just kill me. It's kind of, he's kind of a, a hyperbole of, of how we feel inside. Um, so he says, just kill me. Moving on in verse 4, the Lord replies to him, Is it right for you to be angry about this? Then Jonah went out to the east side of the city... And he made a shelter to sit under as he waited to see what would happen to the city. So even though God told Jonah, I'm going to spare the city, Jonah still camps out to see if maybe something will happen. Like, he was still hoping for a Sodom and Gomorrah type situation. Like, maybe, you know, just maybe fire will fall and just... And so he, he camps out, and he didn't just, like, camp out for, like, 15 or 20 minutes before he headed home. Like, you know, let's see if anything happens. He builds himself a house, like a little shelter there. He, uh, he, he, he puts his entire life on pause in order to see the Assyrians receive what he felt they should have coming to them. He put his entire life on pause. He didn't go back to his life. Remember, he's far from home. He didn't go back to his family. He didn't go back to his ministry as a prophet of God. His hatred for the people was so deep that he stopped living his own life so that he could watch to see if theirs would be destroyed. He put his own life on pause just to wait and see if their life would come to an end. And we we could laugh at Jonah's audacity to sit in his hut and watch his enemies hoping for their destruction at the cost of his own life, living his own life out. But let's put this in our perspective. Maybe you've been wounded by somebody, maybe deeply. And uh, in a more modern context, maybe you've been social media stalking them with the hope of seeing their world come crashing down, seeing bad news come around them, vicariously watching their life play out, maybe seething over every, everything you see happen in their world. They don't deserve this. I know who they really are. Look at the house they live in. Look at the spouse they have. Look at the toys they own. Look at the vacations they take. And we're missing our own life because we built a shelter to hate watch somebody else's life. And life is passing us by as we sit there waiting for God's destruction for how wicked they've been. And Jonah is living out his offense. 
The Assyrians have been understandably, have understandably offended Jonah. They were historical enemies. Remember, a hundred years before, Israel was the vassals to, to Assyria. They had to pay a ransom, basically, to stay alive. They, they were, had a terrible relationship with Assyria. And so, they hated each other. But, they were wicked and depraved, but Jonah decided to continue carrying on this offense, despite what God had done. Um, and to continue living in that offense. Craig Rochelle says this. He says, being offended is inevitable, but living offended is a choice. Being offended is in- inevitable. It's going to happen. Someone's going to offend you. Someone's going to offend me at some point. Um, and I, I, I will probably say something dumb that offends you. As a matter of fact, I know I've done that in the last week. I've done things that are just dumb. I've stuck my foot in my mouth and then I'm like, oh... And sometimes I do it and I don't even realize it and I go along my merry way with my life and you've been offended and I, the person doesn't even know it, right? We all have moments where we can take an offense, where we offend someone. Offenses happen, but carrying that offense and living offended it is, is a decision we choose to make. Whether it's intentional or not that offense has been brought against us, we can choose to continue living in that offense. Let me tell you, holding on to anger and nurturing it Uh, nurturing that offense gives the enemy a foothold in your life then. When you continue to nurture that offense, it gives the enemy a foothold. Ephesians 4.26 says, "And And don't sin by letting anger control you. Underline anger, control you. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. Now when I hear the word foothold, I think of rock climbing. I am not a rock climber, have no interest in rock climbing. But I've seen them doing it. And there's, uh, there's some documentaries about people that climb without ropes. That's stupid is what I call that. But uh, they wear these, these little like ballet looking shoes, right? And, uh, and they just get their toe like in a tiny nook. And that's what I think about when I think of foothold. And so when I get angry, I'm giving the devil like a little smidgen of hope to hold on to. But when you look at the Greek word for, for foothold, it's tapas, which means an inhabited place. It's a place to live. It's not a place to cling on in your life. It's a place where the enemy can come and set up shop and live in your anger and in your uh, vitriol and in your uh, bitterness. So you're not just giving him a place to cling in your life, but a place to inhabit. I don't know about you, but I want no area or place the devil can make a home in my life. I want to give him no quarter, no place for him in my life whatsoever. So it it says, don't let anger here in, in Ephesians, don't let anger control you. You see, anger feels good because it makes us feel like we have some modicum of control or element of control in a situation, doesn't it? I have control because I'm angry. I have some sort of power. But but really, we aren't the one holding power. It, It makes us feel like we have power over someone in our head. But unchecked anger actually controls us. Unchecked anger actually controls us. I, I, uh... Remember this video I had watched about uh, these spores that can actually take over and zombify uh, bugs, um, which was a, a crazy thing. And so I, I went and I found a clip uh, on YouTube from National Geographic. Check this out, and I'll try to connect the dots for you when we're done watching it. Fungi and slime molds race to decompose dead matter on the forest floor. Many spread by releasing spores, up to 30,000 a second. But not all fungi feed on the dead.
Days ago, a spool landed on this ant. Now she's acting strange. A network of roots has infiltrated her muscles. Her body has been taken over by cordyceps. A parasitic fungus. Floods her brain with chemicals, drugging her, compelling her to head where conditions are perfect. For the parasite growing inside. It forces her to clamp down in a death bite and Cordyceps reveals its gruesome nature. After three weeks of growth, Cordyceps can release its own spores, infecting more ants, releasing more spores, infecting more ants, releasing more spores, infecting more ants, infecting more ants, more and more ants. I heard a thanks, Brent. I'm, I'm just, the last couple weeks I've really leaned into just, if you've got a phobia, I'll try to get there, okay? So. <laughs> but there's so many parallels here. Perhaps a, an offense has landed on you and you've let it take root in you. And rather than dealing with it, we can't control whether or not an offense comes our way. We can't control what people do to us, but we can control our responses. And when we let that take root, it, it, it begins to actually become uh, the parasite of bitterness that, that starts to inhabit you. And there's a chemical dopamine hit of feeling justified rage when we, when we respond, when we look for that opportunity to strike back. And we think we're controlling it, but it's actually what becomes the thing that controls us. Hebrews 12, 14, work at living at, in peace with everyone and work at living a holy life for those who are not holy will not see the Lord. Look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. Remember in that video, the... Bitterness moves on from the ant to the next ant, the next ant. And if you watch the whole video, it talks about entire colonies getting wiped out by this, by this fungus. Um, why do you think scripture compares bitterness to a root? It grows beneath the surface. It's underground. There's a reason why when you weed your yard, you can't just take your weed whacker and go, yeah, all done weeding. Right? 
Because there's still something under the ground that tends to spring back up. We can deal with the, uh, you know, the symptoms that are out there. We can go, oh, that's, I need to just not respond like this. And we can try to deal with that symptom over and over. But if there is a root of bitterness that is going to continue springing up, it's going to continue being habitually an issue that keeps uh, controlling you. And so he says this root of bitterness needs to be dealt with. It keeps springing up. Um, you see, the Bible says love keeps no record of wrongs. But let me tell you, bitterness does. It keeps detailed records. I was reading a thing about how to fight fair. Uh, and one thing was, it said, don't get historical. <laughs> Instead of hysterical, but historical, right? Some of us can bring up the past and it's like a DVR. Perhaps you've been nurturing an offense for a long time. You've been replaying that event over and over in your mind. You've been rehearsing fantasy situations in which you could get even and, they, and that person realizes just how wrong and evil they were or they've been and how sorry they are. No matter how justified you might be, you've been perched on a hill missing your life as it passes you by. Ralph Waldo, Ralph Waldo Emerson said, every minute you're angry, you're losing 60 seconds of happiness. And so Jonah sat there for days and days and days waiting to see what would happen. Continuing in verse 6, and it says, and so the Lord arranged, the Lord God arranged for a leafy plant to grow there. And I brought a leafy plant. I actually, we have a banana plant tree thing in our house and it's enormous. And I was taking it out. I got it out my front door this morning. I was like, too big. And so (laughs) here's our leafy plant. So, the Lord God arranged for a leafy plant to grow there. And soon it spread its broad leaves over Jonah's head, shading him from the sun. And this eased his discomfort. And Jonah was very grateful for the plant. Jonah could have left that hillside anytime he wanted, right? He was very discomforted until this plant showed up, right? And this plant was so symbolic to Jonah. uh, It was a representation of God's favor for him. God brought me this plant. He loves me. And so God's blessing has uh, spread over him. He's going, oh, look at me, blessed and highly favored. Right? He's looking at his leafy plant. I'm so blessed. He probably sang that song, give thanks with a grateful heart. Give thanks. Looking at his leafy plant. But then the next verse says, but God also arranged for a worm. And that next morning at dawn, the worm ate through the stem of the plant so that it withered away. I'm not going to kill this plant. I've got plant people in here that would kill me if I killed this plant. But uh, I was going to spray it with, with Roundup or something. And I would be like, no! But, but uh, so it withered away. And as the sun grew hot, God arranged for a scorching east wind to blow on Jonah. And the sun beat down on his head until he grew faint and he wished he could die. Death is certainly better than living like this, he exclaimed. Then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry because the plant died? Yes, Jonah retorted, even angry enough to die. (laughs) The guy loved his plant. He He was so mad at God over the plant issue that he was willing to die. If this plant then was an expression of God's love and favor to Jonah especially... That he, God sent me this special plant. When that comfort is removed, when the plant is gone, all he's left with then was what was always there. The bitterness that laid beneath, which had existed from the beginning. The external comfort of the plant may have distracted Jonah and preoccupied Jonah. I love my plant. I love plant. But 
When everything is stripped back, what lies underneath is what remains. And what was underneath was the bitterness and the hatred and the anger. When the plant was gone, when God took away the plant, then all that was left was Jonah's anger and hatred again. And he was right back to just kill me, God. I'm so mad, I just want to die. And so then the Lord said, if you feel sorry about this plant, though you did nothing to put it there, it came quickly and it died quickly. But Nineveh is more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? So God challenges Jonah back. He says, you didn't do anything to bring this plant into the world or to cause it to grow, to make it photosynthesize or do anything like that or to take it away. That was all me. But we love to be the arbiters of God's grace. The ones who decide who get it. um, Determining who's on the in crowd and who's on the out crowd. And God is challenging Jonah's paradigm here. He says, you aren't the plant grower. I'm the plant grower. I choose who I'm going to send the plant to. I choose who I take it away from. Remember what Job said. Blessed is he who gives and takes away. Blessed is the name of the Lord. So um, God says, I can bless and pour out my grace on any I choose. In verse 11, God says the Ninevites are living, he says, in spiritual darkness. This is an important thing. We need to hear this church. This is going to be challenging for some of us to hear, though. But hear me out. God says in verse 11, the Ninevites are living in spiritual darkness. This is after they've repented. Am I right? In other translations, it says they don't know their right hand from their left. They are so confused. He says, while they are repentant, they are still lost people. They're still lost people. They might not have been destructed those 40 days after Jonah's announcement, but they were still lost. And so Jonah is seeing them and saying, okay, you're showing them mercy, but they don't even believe the right things, God. They don't, they don't, their doctrine is all messed up. They don't even believe the right things about God. Jonah is looking at God and going or at them and going, God, you're showing these people mercy, but they've been living sexually explicit lives, and they still don't know what righteous marriage looks like. They're still living in, in, in sin, maybe. They don't know their right hand from their left. They're confused. They're, 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 and, and he says, wait, God, you're still showing them mercy, but they've been dishonest in business. Maybe they've been ethically treating people wrong, and you're still showing them mercy. He says, God, you're still showing them mercy, but maybe they still insist that I use the wrong pronouns I don't want to use on them. They're lost. God says they're lost. I showed them mercy, but they're lost. But Jonah wants the destruction of God to fall on him because he hates them. And he's saying, here, God, I am. I live my life piously. I do one thing wrong, and you have me eaten by a fish. One thing. (laughs) How many of us ever justify ourselves because we feel like we live pretty good lives, but then we have a really big struggle, and we compare that to someone that we'd say lives a whole lot more wicked than us? And do we ever convince ourselves, then, that our bitterness is we're just angry at people for God's sake, then? James 1.20, human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. And I'm going to say this, it doesn't produce the righteousness God desires in either yourself or the person you're angry at. Our human anger, we can get angry at people and think that'll fix them. That's not going to produce God's righteousness in them. Neither is it going to produce it in you. But we try to convince ourselves that our bitterness and our anger at people is for God's sake. Oh, we say, oh God, I've got just righteous anger over this. I am righteously angry over this. And we get, have you ever noticed that almost always we get righteously angry over somebody else's sin? 
When's the last time you got righteously angry over your own sin? I've had it with my own sin. It makes me sick. We should be. But we're a lot better getting angry at other people's sin, aren't we? Righteously indignant about it. See, when we get righteously indignant about other sin, that's not being righteously angry. That's being self-righteous anger right there. That's self-righteous anger. Jesus compares that to telling someone they have a speck of sawdust in their eye, and the whole time you've got a plank in your own eye, a giant plank of wood sticking out of it. See, bitterness poisons our perspective by focusing on the sins of others while forgetting we've fallen so short ourselves. It poisons our perspective. Ephesians 4.31 Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God, through Christ, has forgiven you. One of the most holy things, church, we can do is show mercy to others. Matthew 18. There's a story Jesus tells. It's a parable about a servant that owed his master, which in modern times, if you calculate it out, would have been roughly $9 billion. The reason Jesus used that number was it was to sound ridiculously unattainable. He owed him so much money it could never be paid back. $9 billion. And the master says, you know what? I fully forgive all of it. That debt that was going to have you thrown in prison, that was going to have all of these things done, it's forgiven. And the the guy is so thankful. And he leaves his master's presence. He goes outside and he sees another fellow uh, servant, one of his colleagues, who owed him about, in modern days, $15,000. Now let me tell you, if someone owed me $15,000, that's not insignificant. I'd be shaking you down a little bit. But he just went from getting $9 billion forgiven... Found this guy that owed him 15K, grabbed him, started to strangle him, and said, Where's my money? And the guy goes, I'll get it, I'll try to find it. You know, he's trying to tell him, I'll I'll get it. He goes, No, and he has him thrown into prison until he can pay every penny back. Well, the other servants around see what happens, and they're concerned, and so they go tell the master what just happened, and the master is furious. I just forgave you $9 billion worth of of, of back pay you owe me, or whatever the amount, the the debt you owe me is, and you go and do this. And so he grabs this man and has him thrown to where there's going to be weeping and and gnashing of teeth. And and, uh, this story is just. this is it's it feels like what is this guy's problem but let me tell you there's a lot in this room many of us in this room that need to cancel a debt for someone and i'm not saying that debt's not insignificant fifteen thousand dollars is a lot maybe someone owes you a very big debt there is a lot of bitterness and it has reason for it don't get me wrong there's reason for it like jonah you've been angry maybe to the point of wishing death on yourself like he did but if you think about it, you've actually just been living dead this whole time because you've been living through uh, that bitterness. And it's been what's been controlling you. It's stolen your peace and it's stolen your purpose. And a heart that's filled with anger will not produce a life that's filled with peace. If you've been going, God, where's the peace that I've been wanting in my life? Let me tell you, if you've had anger that's been living there, they can't cohabitate. If you've got bitterness that's been living there, Peace and bitterness cannot cohabitate the same heart. And I don't want to minimize what you've experienced. Again, that debt was big that that man owed. Perhaps you've experienced in your life abuse from someone. Maybe you've seen one of your children abused by someone. Maybe somebody cost you your job. 
or spread rumors about you. Maybe someone has stolen from you. Maybe your spouse was unfaithful. Maybe you feel every reason and every right to hold that rage and that bitterness. But bitterness is a burden that is keeping you chained to your past. And it's preventing you from reaching your future. This morning, I want to invite you to forgiveness. And it's not just a duty. Sometimes we look at forgiveness as, well, I have to do this because God said so. It's also a privilege. It's a privilege of a Christian to be able to forgive. There's a Christian author named Lewis Smeads who was a a theologian at Fuller Seminary. And he said this, he said, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and to discover that that prisoner was you. So we can carry anger about someone and bitterness towards someone for a long time. And just like I said, I can be completely blissfully unaware. Let me tell you, the people that wound you and walk away are not being held captive like you have been. And there's freedom in the forgiveness. So this morning, I'm going to ask our elders to come forward and just spread across all the way across the platform this morning. I want to give you this invitation for you to come to invite you to forgiveness. To invite you to come and lay down that burden of bitterness. And this, I realize this requires a lot of transparency to actually stand up and walk out. But let me tell you, I think a huge percentage of us in this room have carried a hurt with us a long time. And let me tell you, the scars will remain. The scars are there. They remind us that that thing happened. But some of us keep fostering it and have kept that open and raw. And it's time for the healing to begin. So right now, can we stand together, church, together as a whole body? There's two different groups I want to invite forward. We set this time aside. I intentionally quit early. I went quick so that we could have time at the altars. Here's what I ask. If you have bitterness and you want to come lay it down, to come pray with these that are up here. These are the elders of our church that pray for you every week. They pray over our church. And the second thing is this, if you need healing for your body or healing for your soul, if there's physical healing you need, they have anointing oil and they want to pray over you. They want to anoint you with oil. In the book of James chapter 5, it says, if any of you are sick, you're to come for the elders of the church to anoint you with oil and to be prayed for. And the prayer of the righteous will avail much. So if you need healing, they want to pray for your healing. But let me tell you this, that, that it also says in the book of Matthew, that if you hold something against your brother before you come to the altar, you just go deal with that thing. So if you are carrying bitterness before you come for your healing, let's deal with the heart first. You hear me? So right now, church, we're going to take a few moments just responding to the Holy Spirit to come forward. If you don't have bitterness you're dealing with, but you want to spend time with the Lord, I invite you to come forward and find a place to pray. We're going to spend a few moments in prayer right now. Come forward.
Come to the altar, the Father's arms are open wide, forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Oh, come to the altar, the Father's arms are open. 
was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Oh, come to the altar, the Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus, I thank you that forgiveness comes through your, through your sacrifice. The greatest forgiveness that can be offered, we have received. And Lord, that you would teach us, grow us in being able to release those that we feel we should hold something over. But God, we would re- remember and be reminded of the forgiveness that was offered to us through Christ. And through that, we would be set free as we forgive others and wish blessing and favor and God's mercy for them as we have found it. We thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. New Life, have a blessed week. Enjoy your holiday. We will see you next Sunday. God bless you.